1: Hello, all you theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome back to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called Problematic? Question Mark: Shows you're mad at and their possible redemption. Uh, I'm your host, Matt Koblik, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts, and with me today is a theatrical creative artiste uh you might know him best for his work with team star kid but after today you're gonna know him for being an opinionated bitch like me please welcome to the pod Corey lubowich hello Corey. hey uh, welcome to your uh, first episode of broadway breakdown thank you so much so happy to be here so happy to have you Corey. what show are we talking about today we are talking about the king and i the king and i okay i sorry i have could you have heard sw- of it i could have sworn we were talking about jagged little pill fuck okay um <laughs> yeah no we're talking about the king and i i have heard of it i have heard of it how did this show come into your life on vhs of course um <laughs> you do the og movie
2: oh yeah oh yeah i feel like there were there, it was like one of those that we had a couple we had like lots of VHS type tapes, but like it got a lot of play. It yeah. was also like not one of the like big like blister like Disney ones. It was one that was just like a cardboard sleeve because I distinctly remember that one and like mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz because
0: mm-hmm. also
2: Wizard of Oz had like a it had, like a little flap thing with like photos on it.
0: Mm-hmm. But
2: um, but yeah, I think my I'm trying to think is probably my grandparents like had it on VHS and like. Probably showed it to like me, me and my brothers first. Like, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. So I, I f- grew up watching the like the VHS a bunch.
1: Yeah, I was around when the '96 Broadway revival with Donna Murphy happened, although I didn't see it. I remember all the posters. I had friends who had seen it, and I would look through their souvenir programs and think how pretty it looked. Because uh, we'll talk about it. It's one of the things we I've been asked to discuss with this show is uh the. Chances for opulence whenever you do a mm-hmm. production of The King and I, yeah, and exactly what that means and how you go about it, for sure.
2: Yeah, is, um, was is that the one that the poster is sort of like an elephant? Like, yeah, that um, the that poster was like in up is like one of the posters in the theater classroom mm-hmm. uh, of my high school, and I truly was like staring at one day. I was like looking and I was like, wait a second, like because that one I, is um. That was choreographed by Lars
1: Lubavitch. Yeah. Everything but the small house of Uncle Thomas. He. Okay. choreographed. Yeah. Who is my cousin? Um, oh, no way. Yeah. He changed the spelling
2: of, of his last name. Um, because, just because. I think like Russian dancer, like, like yeah. those like Russian names were like in when he was
1: like coming up. I, tr- I mean, I truly thought he was like a Russian immigrant because of his name. Uh, I've never heard a single, uh, interview of his and I only know him from like the three theater shows he's, mm-hmm. he's done. So I was like, Oh, he's talking uh, about a world. He's very Russian. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I, um, my understanding of like Lubowich, I mean, it's, it's, I think it comes from, again, this is what I've been told by, like, you know, mm-hmm. from my, my grandparents that it was, uh it was obviously uh, it's the name of a town like it's and the like the Lubav- the, the like same thing mm-hmm. um same town but that it, i think it's like on the borders so depending on when you look at the borders like it was it could be russian or like polish like it's sort of in that realm
1: okay um yeah the poster for that revival it's very eye catching although i personally think it has nothing really to do with the show i just know that revival the like the the um the proscenium was flanked by two elephants. Mm-hmm. And so that was like their big calling card. Was, it's all about elephants. <laughs> and uh, I had seen the movie many times, uh, which we'll also we'll talk about briefly. But I hadn't seen it live on stage until the Lincoln Center production.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's the only one I've seen live to this day. I saw it twice. I saw it when it opened with Kelly. And then I saw it a year later when Maren Maisie took over. Full disclosure, I liked Marin a touch more. Maren was just a little ballsier. And I like okay. my leading ladies have balls, especially someone like Anna, who's like a sure. bit of a stinker. Um, and Kelly was very British, very refined, sang it very beautifully. She did a lovely job. And then Maren came on and she was like, I'm not taking anyone's shit. And I'm like, that's right, queen. Um, so that was my life. Have you seen it live before or just the film? Uh,
2: I saw the that revival with Kelly. Mm-hmm. I believe that's the only other time I've seen it
1: okay well so for the uncultured fucks and because uh cory's time is limited today everybody this is actually going to be the shortest episode of broadway breakdown in maybe two years so just letting y'all I'm know i'm so sorry i didn't no, know not, how long I'm the breakdown not, was it just means i'm not allowed to go on uh non-related tangents it has to all just be about king and i but Corey, for the uncultured fucks out there which is what i call my listeners uh uh-huh. what is the king and i about what's the plot
2: the plot uh there's this this British lady named Anna she comes to Siam to like she gets hired she comes with her son she gets hired to teach English to like the the children of of the king Mm -hmm. um and you know classic fish out of water um but also like a little white savior fish out of water um and she like teaches uh teaches the kids English but and she like forms this relationship with the king because he like wants to be taken seriously on a, a global level, which is why he's like brought her in to like be teach his family, like, you know, whatever the sort of British ways. Um, but they both learn from each other.
1: Yeah. I guess that is, that is a pretty solid uh, account. I, so I remember enjoying the movie, always finding it a bit on the long side. And then I saw the revival and also really enjoyed it again finding it a touch on the long side but i was like i feel like this is more complex than people give it credit for and then when i was reviewing it again for this podcast i still like this full disclosure i do think this is objectively a well-made musical Uh, and i will discuss some issues that have now come up with me with it as well as i'm sure issues you have and the reason why we're talking about it today because it has been discussed as a problematic musical for some and not for others. And we are here to definitively de- decide Corey, which is true. Um, Cause as you know, these things are absolutely. kind Th- of There's base. a correct there's, answer. There's always a correct answer, but yeah. um, I, d- I remember finding the final scene on my r- review for this, not problematic, uh, but, and also I want to disclose to you as we record this, problematic means because the way people use the word for shows like this is not technically accurate uh but well the, what, and, what
2: yeah what do we mean by
1: well so um i think i've already said this on the prom episode which will be before this one but I was talking to friend of the pod, Patrick Pacheco, and he was like, well, problematic technically means like a problem musical, a musical that doesn't really work. That can't be fixed. Oh, like, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's absolutely how it should be used. So like a show like Candide or Merrily can't ever totally work, no matter how much closer you get to fixing it. Mm -hmm. And that's totally true. But now it's used for shows that people take umbrage with, have issues with, um, usually on a moral level. And as I've said with Ali, and it's very, and I want to, underlined it as we continue to talk about this musical the majority of writers for broadway shows that people ha- have moral objections to the majority of those writers are on the liberal side of the political scale so i want to make sure people understand that so- especially someone like oscar hammerstein and we'll. i want to put the historical connotations of the show in a minute uh he was not um someone who was like you know who's the best white people you know who should for stay sure. in the home women that wasn't that wasn't his view but he was you know a white hetero male in a certain period of time so while he was extraordinarily liberal liberal for his time we have many of us have progressed in a certain way that look at that as a little more rigid but that's that's where we go with problematic mm-hmm. um the final scene as i are saying i was rereading it and watching the scene i was like it, this part is a little white savory and i wonder if A different director might have been able to tweak the viewpoint of it because i do feel the majority of the show is sort of a butting of the heads of two very intelligent people who are both very stubborn and have their own prejudice Mm -hmm. in the world because it's interesting to watch anna in this piece and notice how like while she is literally hired to bring western culture to siam because the king is aware that they have to progress and expand which is a real thing that actually did happen with the king mm-hmm. uh she does let her prejudice get the better of her many times and just because something is not like how she's known it she immediately assumes that it's archaic and mm-hmm. it takes sometimes a baller like lady tiang to be like i'm not dumb bitch like yeah <laughs> she's like you think that i'm archaic i like how it's like what's the polite royal way to say go fuck yourself and that's what I love about Lady Tiang as a character. Uh, but no, the final scene, it gets a little like, Anna, we'll be lost without you. Please stay while our father dies. And I'm like, part of you as a director wants to direct it so that the little letter that the kids write to Anna at the end is the king's like own little manipulation of like, uh-huh. I'm going to have them say all the things you want to hear them say, so you'll stay. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that's how Hammerstein intended it. I think he was just trying to get the audience to go, aw. Um, yeah. <laughs> unclear. So first of all, Corey, what is something about this musical that you admire and then something you uh would like to address an umbrage with? I I
2: I do think the score is gorgeous. Like I I think that is like I you know, it's it just like inject that right into my veins, like the the big sort of classic orchestra swell. Um I think I think that just like always like, does hold up. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's like that Rodgers and Hammerstein thing where you go, yeah, 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 you can hate the shows, but, like, there's still some good tunes. Like, sure. and all, and also, like, we just don't get very many of those sort of types of scores anymore anyway. Mm. Like, on Broadway, because it's all, like, pop rock type <laughs> stuff.
1: <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. You just said that with, like, the subtlest of, like, shoulder shrugs of, like, ugh, pop rock. Which, again, love, but, like, different
2: yeah um and so i think that that's what i i definitely felt that when i saw the was it 2015 revival yeah. um like just you hear like that full orchestra and it just like washes over you and like i'm literally getting like goosebumps talking about that um so yeah it's like cheesy to say like oh the music but like really it just like cuts at least for me, like straight to the core mm-hmm. uh, of that. And truly like, yeah, like you, you can't discount that.
1: I think that's absolutely fair. Music is a very chemical reaction. It's like kind of, you, you can always dissect it later. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I feel like no one in the moment is ever dissecting music in an intellectual way. It's after it's over and you're like repeated listening to it. You're like, Oh, there, there are layers here. Uh, there are things to I, look into.
2: Yeah. And that's like the, in gen- like that's in general the magic trick with musicals where you go it's it's like a biological shortcut to like feeling an emotion where like if it's good you just sort of like bypass like the brain yeah and you just, then you go straight into the body you like feel it and you know and then like hopefully the lyrics like support that and like you can like dig into that, intellectualize that later but it's like emotion first, and it's like a shortcut there that even like the most compelling scene, like a dialogue scene, can't get you there that intensely or that quickly.
1: Absolutely. I think it's Lindsay Ellis said in a YouTube video, she said, musicals are something that your heart always understands, even if your head doesn't always understand it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I mean, that's exactly what you're saying. And it's, yeah. it's absolutely true. I mean, the best musicals and the ones that remain evergreen are the ones where it can tap into that emotion while still maintaining a sense of uh, intellectual property. I don't know. I'm not, I can't think of the right word, but you know what I mean? Where it's like, you don't have to shut your brain completely off in order for the, emotions yeah. to go over, uh, which is something that I've had issues with, with the last couple of years of musicals is I've seen a lot where like the structure is poor or like, there's no mm-hmm. logic whatsoever. The characters make no sense. And or like the lyrics don't support the music or whatever. Mm-hmm. And people go, well, can you just enjoy it? I'm like, I can't turn I... my, bl- my brain completely off. Like, yeah. It, you know? it, like,
2: I mean, not to talk like in sort of marketing terms, I hear people talk like in the marketing world where you go as consumers, like in terms of like decision-making, like at the end of the day, all decisions we make as humans are emotional ones. Mm-hmm. And then we back them up with like logic and like facts and reasoning. Like, mm-hmm it's like we're emotional beings first and then we sort of back into the rest of it we go yeah yeah logic the rest of it to justify that and i feel like that's how it is where you go if like done correctly like the music you sort of is a shortcut there and then the surrounded like the the structure of the lyrics the book like the care all of that has to support it so that it, it doesn't it's not just like a cheap high that wears off like real fast yeah um and like you can go back And sort of, it it all makes sense. But if it doesn't, it like falls apart very quickly.
1: Yeah. What's a musical for you where you get that sort of emotional catharsis, but still feel intellectually stimulated?
2: Uh. And suddenly, I can't think of a single musical. It's (laughs) Annie. What's a musical? Uh, Annie does it. Doesn't it? I don't think I've ever seen Annie in full. That's um.
1: I don't. And that's
2: how I also feel about Annie. (laughs)
1: Yeah, well, they made a really lovely TV movie that's 90 minutes and that's perfect for that show. I mean, I, the thing is like, and it, it's luckily in King and I, it's not the entire show, but there's enough of it in there that I'm just like, mm-hmm. uh-huh, get rid of them. I know it's part of the plot, but children, child actors, yeah, yeah, yeah. very rarely do I find them successful. And when there's a bad it's one, it's t- like, a, oh, it's I know tough.
2: the the. That's the the problem is with child actors is like the best possible one is going to be fine but like mediocre to like bad are going to ruin your day.
1: Absolutely, especially on stage where there's nowhere to hide and yeah. and anything can fuck it up and, you know, like, and it's me.
2: and it's mostly like I the kids who are like they're trying so hard and that's the problem. Yeah. They're like Ugh, try like I go, you're working so hard and it's like making me nervous. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I mean, there's, there's a reason why the, children of the king in king and i the ones that land the most are the ones who don't say any lines but just have their just have like a physical
2: mar- gag like
1: yeah the march of the siamese children like the ones that have their physical gags but don't actually have lines are the ones that the audience are super into mm-hmm. and then like, they can project it at whatever they want onto them and yeah because like- we don't we don't have to actually hear them talk because w- once a child actor speaks like all form of natural cuteness goes away and we're, mm-hmm. we're reminded that we're seeing a presentation and uh but I think that's also kind of true of theater in general. Like, you want, you, you're always, we all are in a silent agreement that we're watching a facade, but we want to buy it as much as possible. And anything that ruins that agreement, mm-hmm. I'm like, you've, you, it's, it's a, it's a promise that's been broken. And I'm like, well, now you can't take it back. And uh, now I don't trust you anymore.
2: Yeah. Um, um, oh, I thought of a musical. Uh, yes. Uh, name it. This, it feels very Billy on the street. Like, name a woman. Um, <laughs> uh, falsettos uh okay i i love falsettos um i i like act two better than act one is a little weird act one is a little weird but um i think there's like for me that like nice balance of like you know you got a hummable tune here and there but there's also like there's like storytelling there's character there's uh like there are those like sort of musical emotional things but then like there the rest of it backs it up and yeah.
1: feels like there's there's stuff to like dig into there that's i mean it's a good answer a lot of people love falsetto's i have more of an appreciation for it myself but Fair. i lo- i like listening to act 1 and watching act 2 does that make mm-hmm.
0: sense
1: yes um, absolutely yeah cuz i th- i think there's so many great songs in act 1 but act 2 is where the mm-hmm. story really compels me I, act 1 i'm always like at arm's length story wise yeah
2: and this was i mean i was i was no longer in high school but i like my high school did it Mm-hmm. just falsetto land just like act two uh, and so that that was my first introduction to it and it's like like a little gem of like a full full like story it was like delightful like lovely i cried um and then i saw like the the falsettos like with the first act and i was like huh
1: there's some stuff in act one where we go that's that's weird yeah well it's <laughs> but... so it's funny because it's like you you I feel like you do need that backstory of act one in order to give greater context for act two. But at the same time, like act two is its own little mm-hmm. musical sa- as well. And there's enough context clues in act two that if you have never seen act one, you know, you can pick up on it mostly, but we're not talking about falsettos, <laughs> anyway. Before, sorry, sorry. <laughs> but thank you for answering my question. Um, what is a major element though, of the King and I, that really negatively sticks with you? It's,
2: it's tough because it's sort of, in the, like, contemporary sense of when we talk about things being, like, problematic and, like, you know, story framing and, like, agency, it's sort of, like, the concept of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Because, like, when you dig into it, like you said, like, there actually is a surprising amount of, like, uh nuance in terms of, like, oh, it's not, like, fully a white savior because, like, she actually learns, like, oh, she assumed they're these sort of, like, savages and, like, actually has to be, like, n- no. Like they're not like there's stuff to learn from them. Um, But it's, uh, yeah, it's just like the framing in general of like, you know, the exotic Orientalism of of it all. And like the, the way the accents are sort of like written and like, it's just like inherent in the, in the story. And I think there's also like an amount of like growing up where you go, this is, this was all true. Like, this is like based on a true story to go, now with like more context you go yeah
1: based <laughs> yeah Loosely i think the best based. way i think the best way to describe the king and i is uh historical fiction uh it's oh, more historical yeah. than fiction but it's also more fiction than historical absolutely yeah like it's not abraham lincoln vampire killer but it's also not mm-hmm. sea biscuit sure it's because it's so-
2: also like all history is fiction but yeah well anyway. it's, it's
1: all based off of whoever's telling it and exactly. you know, yeah, yeah. There, there's always a narrative that we're told for years and years and years and then more information comes along or someone else yeah. has a different take it's why wicked's been running for forever because they're like you thought you knew wizard of oz uh, have a different angle bitch it's a
2: great marketing hook honestly
1: it truly is i was just listening to um a recent Lost Culturistas because sometimes I like to dabble with the gays. Uh, <laughs> and they were talking about how like groundbreaking Wicked was because everyone was like, you can't have two female leads in a show. I'm like, that's, there were t- shows with two female leads before. Um, Like that wasn't Wicked's hook was that it's, it was the two girls. The hook was Wizard of Oz, but I digress. That unknown I, I property? Say what? That unknown property? Yeah, no, yeah, I know that unknown property. It's, so I think it's important actually to give a little context for the listeners who made me only know King and I on its own because you actually brought up two points that people wrote in that they wanted us to discuss because I don't know if you know the story. Uh, I know you've got a huge social media following. I have a uh-huh. dedicated no. one, um, okay. a fraction of yours, but it's dedicated. And I re and I posted to Insta and I said, Hey guys, we're going to be talking about this show. What are some things you'd like us to discuss things you love things you have issues with. One person did have uh, wanted us to talk about the Orientalism of King and I, the exoticism of the Orient, which is something that is prominent in many shows, and it's ironic because that's something that Hammerstein wanted to go against with the show. And the question is, how well did he succeed? And then the question is, you know, how how much could he have succeeded for his time? And then where did we mm-hmm. uh, pick up from there? The dialect was something you also mentioned. Somebody else also said something that Hammerstein was really big on in his scripts and you can see it in Oklahoma and carousel as well. And I think even in uh, a little bit of South Pacific, he didn't really trust actors to read the words and then do the dialect on their yeah. own. He was like, let me give you exactly like, right, how it is. Like in. Yeah. yeah. Like phonetically. And listen, that is great for some people. Some people can't do dialect any other way, but it is something that can be tricky for others. And I think it is something we've kind of moved on from now that we have other ways to do accent work Mm -hmm. with scripts that's an easy remedy that's okay someone let's go through the script and just write out the words don't do that phonetics yeah Um, that's an easy fix but a quick history everyone of just sort of how we got this musical rogers and hammerstein by this point had done oklahoma carousel allegro and south pacific in succession and allegro sort of like the one belly flop that they had and even that was like a nine month run where everyone was like you got a little over ambitious but good on you uh, you know, like Oklahoma changed the game. Carousel, they're like, this might actually be better, but it's also a lot darker and weirder. And so it's not gonna run for 10 years. Yeah. In South Pacific, they're like, you found the happy middle ground. You found the dark weirdness of carousel with the like mainstream happiness of Oklahoma, and you got yourself a nice phenomenon. And so with King and I, they were in a similar position as they were post-Oklahoma, where everyone was like, What's next? What's next? You've done three major home runs and one sort of fumble. And They were not really good at kind of coming up with ideas for musicals themselves. Every time a Hammerstein had an original idea that he, you know, did on his Mm -hmm. own, it didn't work out like Allegro, me and Juliet. uh, I think he also came up with the idea of adapting Steinbeck's uh, cannery, whatever cannery row for pipe dream. But when people came to him with material to Mm -hmm. adapt, that's usually when they created their best work. That's
2: something that like, infuriates me in general when everyone's like Ugh, like whenever like i i get it like a movie adaptation like comes to like oh, Broadway Way sure. and everyone like i was like oh my god they're like no like original ideas anymore i go i'm sorry there have never been original like ideas like everything they just was a books before like yeah. just because it's an adaptation does not inherently mean good or bad
1: oh no like no, and that I, I, always drives me up the wall <laughs> absolutely same i've always said I, listen a great musical can come from anywhere be it in a quote-unquote original idea or an adaptation of something the mm-hmm. difference between Rodgers and hammerstein and you know movie adaptations now is you know it's about extending the financial success of yeah property, like the and, ip you know, like exactly gotta make it as close to the IP but, as remember.
2: but like i i mean i do think there's lots of like artists working on those who like have the best intentions like
0: in terms of that
2: and like and you know and it's still like a commercial thing it's obviously like the mouse but you go like lion king you go there that is like i feel like the the ultimate example of like both like commercial success and taking the ip and like expanding it but
1: also changing it in in different ways yeah and it was a true collaboration because uh if you look into it, Julie Taymor had some truly bonkers ideas that the yeah. House of Mouse was like, you can't do that, but yeah. we'll let you do all this other stuff. So that yeah. was very much a back and forth. But no, you're absolutely right. There's again, if you go in with truly how to make something into mm-hmm. something new in the medium, it can be something fantastic.
2: And, and and when you as like someone who has like made new musicals where you go when it isn't something when it is like totally original, it's really hard because you are both trying to figure out like are these characters like how do they behave like what is the world who are these characters also what plot wise is happening and then also like okay now how how does that come to life like through through music when does that sing when when does that happen and mm-hmm. so literally like every piece is moving there's like no solid foundation and so it's hard to know sometimes what to fix like when something isn't working and when it's just like it makes sense to lot easier in other ways where you go oh the story like the plot and the characters have sort of been figured out already and like maybe we're going to change them and adapt them but like it's still a herculean feat to like figure out how to musicalize it Mm -hmm. anyway um and so it's like a little at least you're not trying to hit a moving target so i go yeah it makes sense that like what if the story's there like
1: yeah yeah but the the other thing is they always kind of had to take some convincing like uh Carousel, they didn't want to do Lilium because they were like, I don't understand Eastern Europe. And then they moved it to New England and they're like, oh, I get it now. Now I get it now. Yeah. And they did. So this one came about because Gertrude Lawrence, who was a really big musical theater star of the 20s and 30s and had like one last major success with Lady in the Dark in 1940. She was looking for like one more big hit like sort of a minor comeback off. yeah exactly well she didn't know she was dying but yeah she, like, <laughs> she was she more uh more detrimental than dying her... she was a 51 year old woman in entertainment and she oh, was like so
2: she was basically dead like basically
1: yeah she died and then she died again but so she her i think her agent no her lawyer presented her the anna and the king novel Mm-hmm. Uh, which was then turned into a movie and presented that to Rodgers and Hammerstein. I think they first went to Noel Coward and then Cole Porter and both were like, absolutely not. And then <laughs> Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, had read, they, I think they had read the real Anna Lee Owens memoir because that's sort mm-hmm. of how this all came about is Anna Lee Owens in real life did go to Siam to teach the children and the wives of the king and you know, was there for close to 10 years and things happened, some things which are true in the musical and her memoir some things so which aren't she publishes her first memoir about her time there it's a huge international sensation she publishes a second one also a sensation people in siam now known as thailand uh come forward and are like um some of the things she said <laughs> yeah. here aren't true and anna's like your word against mine and uh because basically you know she over exaggerated her can, how close she was to the king and exactly how yeah. much she had in the court but you know, she the general concept was still true, and some things still happened. But her memoir then got novelized, uh, so like got even more fictionalized, and then it got uh-huh. turned into a movie which got even more sensationalized. And so Rogers and Hammerstein decided they wanted they they watched a screening of the movie which has Rex Harrison as the king, so you know, mm-hmm. that's what we heard this time. And they liked the movie, they're like, okay, I, I think I see a, a musical structure here, and they immediately go we have to accept the fact that we're not making a documentary of what actually happened. Like we, like we only have a year to write this and we could either pour all of our research into what actually happened between Anna and the King, or we could pour all of our research into Siam at this time and like do as much other cultural research. Um, And so they, they decided we don't care about Anna anymore. Like we're following the movie and we're going to put all of our research into like the actual culture, which I think is, of the two, I'm like, I would rather you do that, you know, mm-hmm. make up your own story and try to put as much realism of the world as possible. Mm-hmm. So they're not like, ah, oh, you know, we made up this random tradition and everyone in Thailand is yeah. like, <laughs> that's never a thing. Because the the thing about the show that's made it problematic, quote unquote, to a lot of people of Thailand isn't actually any of the cultural elements of the show, but rather how the king is presented. Because mm-hmm. the the king of Siam in real life, the, the king... Monkut, I think is his name. Sorry for uh fucking that up. I think that's all right. M O N G K U T. Why am I saying this to you? You you didn't read anything. So. I was like, I go, I am Taiwanese, yeah. I can't help you with. Thai. I'm not asking you to because you would know. Oh, no, it is. I'm correct. M O N G K U T. Uh, he was a very spiritual man, he was a monk, mm-hmm. uh, for half of his life before he ascended to the throne because his brother died. And because of his history as a monk, it gave him more awareness of the world around him. And he was the one who was like, there's a world outside of Sam. We have Mm -hmm. to let it in and learn and grow and expand. He was not really a dictator, nor was he always hot headed like, yeah. And like putting his faith in science to the extent where he was like, all other religions are bogus because science comes first, which is like a major trait of his in the, in the musical. He's also a lot older in real life and died when Anna was on like, a little trip with her son around the world. <laughs> yeah. So you're know, just these things. So they, they stay with the movie and they spend a year writing it and they, you know, do a wide casting call for the roles of the wives and the children and the King. They originally wanted Alfred Drake who had starred in Oklahoma for them and had just done uh kiss me, Kate on Broadway to be the King. He wanted $5,000 a week, which is like $50,000 today. And okay. you're like, go fuck yourself. So they, uh, I think it was Mary Martin, suggested that they hire yule brenner who had just been in a musical with her a few years prior called Lute song and again guys this is 1951 mary martin had just started in a musical where she played a chinese woman this is where broadway was at it's i, I it's just always important to know these things because uh you only can progress so far based on you know what's around you and what you know is around you you it's always hard to know where the future goes so hammerstein like looked around he's like i don't think it's like i think we can do a little better than loot song so you know yul brenner is not of time descent he was mongolian but like one tenth which yeah, is yeah. you know not not really the best representation he was mostly russian but it was enough for people in 1951 and the show when it opened was sort of considered a minor disappointment because everyone was sort of expecting another groundbreaking South Pacific carousel, Oklahoma. And they're like, they pretty much have stuck to what they know and it works, but we're like, we were really waiting for like another major breakthrough. But I don't think people really recognized the breakthrough that they did have until many years later, which is the dynamic between the King and Anna, which we'll get to in a second. But what ended up making the musical become... An enduring classic because it was very successful it swept the Tonys, ran for three and a half years the movie version was a huge phenomenon more so than the movie versions of oklahoma south pacific or carousel and because of that and because of the success of yule brenner in the role the show was constantly revived in new york it's been done all over the world except for thailand um mm-hmm. and
2: what's the timing of like the the, the movie versus broadway so broadway, broadway?
1: opened in march of 51 i believe maybe 52 and then the movie version came out in the spring of 56 so it was a yeah movie versions had a relatively quick turnover they tried to wait till the show was closed because uh i think oklahoma might have been the exception because that just ran for fucking ever but yeah 56 and then after that it was just revived all the time and went on to sort of become the most Well, liked of all the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, because even though Sound of Music was an even bigger phenomenon as a movie, it was never revived in New York City until the 90s. And everyone always Mm -hmm. kind of felt like that was treacly and not really Rodgers and Hammerstein because they just wrote the score. But starting, I would probably say in the. Late 80s, early 90s became this sort of uh started the conversation of this reckoning that brought us here today which is you know it has become this classic enduring classic and then other people going but wait a second i think there are things we need to actually discuss here and we will try to discuss as many of those things as possible we you were talking about sort of the whole just framing of the show of the idea of this of this woman coming into this foreign country and there are obviously hints of white saviorism one person wrote in to say king and i sound of music were basically the same show and i was like is it because it's about a woman who meets children (laughs) because
2: otherwise it really isn't they're not yeah but it is yeah about a woman who meets
1: children very different women (laughs) i mean you could say the same thing of of many shows what happens oh a woman meets some children (laughs) Yeah, um you know one woman was married and had babies she she had done some fucking in her past one woman was famously a nun before she met her children Mm -hmm.
2: yeah i yeah i don't know that i yeah i think that feels pretty like surface it is pretty surface
1: level i think also the idea of like an austere father figure who melts because of the woman but that's not but that's not really true in king and i and like and again this is uh what i was saying before and i want to talk about now what i the thing i really love about this show that I do think was pretty groundbreaking for its time and is rare now is the dynamic between Anna and the King. Cause it's not really romantic, not in the way that we think of romance. It's like into it becomes intimate, but not romantic. Yeah. Like there's
2: a it's, closeness there.
1: Yeah. It's almost like when Harry met Sally right before they actually have sex. Like it's sure. It's,
2: sure, sure. It just like builds and builds and like, yeah. yeah.
1: Because ultimately, the thing that they that they have for each other is a respect of each other's intelligence and and their uh, courageousness. And and they are kind of in a lot of ways the same person because they both are stubborn. They mm-hmm. both are clouded by their own prejudice. And I would argue that the king is far more aware of this than Anna is, because when he's left to his own soliloquy, which is a puzzlement. hmm. He questions his own thinking, his own logical and moral thinking. Mm-hmm. And he has that line about, you know, if there's one thing I know, you know, people often uh, start questioning things that they concluded long ago. You go, so what is true? And I'm like, good on you, because when Anna's left alone, she's talking about her dead husband. And she's talking about how much, you know, you pissed her off. She's not questioning the world yeah. at large, uh, which I just I think that's a fascinating insight I don't know talk to me about the dynamic what like when you I like you
2: think? I I think you're right it is I mean the setup it, it is very that like at least the rom-com of like enemies to lovers sort of like uh, set up of like there's yeah. there's they butt heads so hard uh because they're actually so alike um and I agree it like it basically follows that in terms of like how they fall into each other without the like explicit I I do think like they're not as a kid but like as an adult there's a little bit of like are they gonna are they gonna fuck like uh
1: and like if it i feel like if it were written today like they probably would i don't know like yeah i think a writer today would actually have them at least kiss because that's sort of what's implied could happen at the end of shall we dance is that they might kiss and uh, if you know they were rudely interrupted by tupton being captured (laughs) What yeah what a whore going off with a man she loves the someone also wrote in that they felt that of all the things in the show the tupton plot line is in their opinion what has aged the worst and as i was rereading it and then looking up the history of sort of how the tupton character came to be i'm like i'm not sure i agree with that i actually think the tupton plot line is pretty good and especially when you look into what it was in the book in the book tupton was a wife who had an affair with a priest and basically like had a baby uh, hidden away, and when it was discovered, uh-huh. she was burned at the stake. And Hammerstein was like, "Okay, so I'm not doing that." Yeah, uh, he's like, he's like, obviously we have to have some stakes here. We'll keep the romance because you know we need. He's like, we do need a romance here, and Gertrude Lawrence was again almost dead at 51 and <laughs> all, and famously had a very limited vocal range. So like, we need some sweeping ballads here and we can't give them to Gertrude because she can't fucking sing them. So they're like, let's give them to Tuptim. She's like, but we got to give her a romantic foil. So it's Lunta, who's the man who brings you over from Burma in the musical Tuptim is a mm-hmm. gift from the king of yeah. Burma. Uh, but Hammerstein's like, I don't want to kill her. He's like, I yeah. don't think that's fair. Uh, he and so you know, there's a moment after Shelby dances, and she and Lunta are gonna run away. They get captured. Lunta ends up being the one who's dying off stage because this is a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. There's always got to be somebody who dies at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, usually it's a man. Uh, the men, the men. Good. To, exactly. <laughs> we need fewer men in this world, and they tend to be the hotter men. Uh, you know, Oklahoma. You can cut, cast Jud however you want, but sometimes they cast a Jud who fucks. Uh, and he dies. <laughs> Billy's the one who dies in Carousel. Cable's the one who dies in South Pacific. And King and I, it's Lunta, and then a, the King. And again, we usually cast a King who fucks. So like, it's always these <laughs> virile men where it's like, no, don't die before you fuck me. Um, <laughs> that's the real tragedy. But Hammerstein, I, oh
2: sorry, oh no, I was just in terms of that, like in terms of like that dynamic of like also I think so much of this show, it like sort of rides on that where you go, yeah, there's an element of like inherent, like a lens of like, Oh, isn't it barbaric? Like she's like being given as a gift of it. Like she can't be with the one like she loves. And like, I think that like plays into like where you go, this feels like problematic, even though like, an arranged like relationship or like someone having to marry or be with someone they don't want to is like a a trope in like every, like every possible like narrative and every possible situation. But like, again, based on history of like particularly American and like British, like Orientalism where you go, Mm -hmm. it's just like another thing of like,
1: (laughs) yeah, it's so with the ten plot line, I think what helps that from, from, having the opportunity to be, to be less cringe it can absolutely be cringe um and, and i and i don't think it's like explicitly like oh this is yeah well i have a p problem yeah well it, it's one of those things where there's a lot of gray area that you can really explore if you choose to do so mm-hmm. um the the thing with rogers and hammerstein and a lot of golden age musicals is they fall victim to really surface level presentations and the movie versions of all of their musicals actually really did a lot of harm to their legacy over the years. Cause these movies of their musicals were mostly made in the fifties where there was a haze code where acting on film was rather kind of cheesy. And so as you know, we eventually go into easy rider and the graduate and then one flew over the cuckoo says, so and more sort of uh bold natural kind of films People would start looking back on the fifties Rodgers and Hammerstein movie musicals, going, "Oh Jesus Christ!" It's like, no, no, no. Like yeah. if you actually read the script and you put in people who acted like people, there's something to play here. And what I really, one of the things I really do appreciate about the last revival with Ruthie and Miles as Lady Tiang was that, you know, Bartscher recognized that that role is sort of the, is it with the importance of Lady Tiang as the head wife is that she adds the complication. And, and keeps the musical from ever fully saying out loud, look at this barbaric situation mm-hmm. because she is okay with it. And she is as smart as anyone else in that room. And she chooses all of her words very carefully. I also want to say the musical is very, if there's something that Hammerstein really does underline, it's the fact that there is a language barrier in this show. He emphasizes mm-hmm. it very early that whenever Anna is speaking to people in Siam, they are speaking English back to her. And she is always caught by surprise by anyone who does. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, it's it's always hard to learn another language. So to learn a language in general requires intelligence to have an understanding and, and of the complexity and nuance of someone's conversation in another language is extra intelligent. And to have a sense of humor in someone mm-hmm. else's language is also incredibly intelligent. Oh, yeah. When I was um watching the end of act one last night and my mom walked into the room and she was saying like, Ooh, King and I like, is what like, and I said, no, no, wait, hold on. I'm like, here's a really great joke that Hammerstein has in here that shows that, you know, how much respect he actually has for the intelligence of the King. When Anna comes into the King's study and he also has it in the stage directions, he makes it a point to be like, there are books everywhere. He's like, this guy reads in many different languages. I was like, yeah, no, he's a smart fucking cookie. He's reading the Bible. After they've had like a really big row and she's going to leave. And then she ends up coming back. But he's reading the Bible and he's basically going on about like this. Moses, it's kind of a dumb, dumb. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, he's like, how can you think that the world's created in seven days? And she's like, oh, well, your majesty, the Bible's not written by men based in science. It's men based in faith. He goes, yeah, okay, whatever. And they have their whole thing and they have to, and they, and they find out that the British are coming in because another reason why he wants Anna there to teach is he's very aware that, um, The West is coming in to Siam and the only way he can keep them from sort of invading and taking over is if he shows them that he's on their level, which he is. And he's informed that the British are coming and they are going to do a massive presentation and uh, incorporate a lot of Western culture to appease them. And he says, we have a week. And Anna goes, a week? He goes, whole world was created in seven days, wasn't it? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, and I, and I showed my mom that clip. She goes, oh, that's funny. I'm like, yeah, because he's fucking smart. And he's so smart. He can crack a joke in another person's language with their own religious culture. I, I think that's that's one of those nuances that keeps the show from fully going like, yikes. It has its yikes moments. Yeah. Um, and then you have someone like Lady Tiang who when anna learns of Tuptim's situation she's a present she's a slave Mm -hmm. and tiang is like yeah what of it and she's like say that she's like say that again to my face and she's like tells anna you know this girl has a great situation in all of our eyes she not only that like she's i understand that she loves another man but she's being incredibly stupid about it like Mm -hmm. it's also as if lady tiang is like the first thing she's like you're disrespecting the king by by have by having another love she's like but you know what you can't totally control your heart I know girl that's why I sing something wonderful <laughs> however it's like you can be less sloppy about it she's like you yeah, are yeah. in a mess and I think that uh Hammerstein the optimist and romantic that he was wanted to inject that romanticism in Tupton and Lunta but also the realist in him was like they can't get away with how they've been acting for two years and not get caught some at some point it's like that's just the reality so he has that but Tuptim not only speaks English, and we learn this early, and he underlines it. She reads in English as well, and she makes it a point to ask Miss Anna for a, uh, a book that that she's interested in. This is the, this is one part where I am like Hammerstein, just, you're underlining the whole slavery bit a little too much here. She's like, I yeah. hear of this book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. <laughs> I hear it's you know about slavery. Maybe uh slip it my way. It's as if you know balsettos is happening and it's right it was maybe it's like in trousers still so it's before marvin has left Mm -hmm. trinifer uh wizard and he's like asking mendel he goes i've heard about this book the velvet rage yeah yeah. maybe gab that for me and maybe i'll come up with some interesting theories it's it's very like bold in lights um but i but again audiences were both more willing to embrace nuance but also simpler themselves so that's the tricky thing with hammerstein books is like there's all this stuff he wants to incorporate but then like the commercial side of him is like how much can an audience actually accept here
2: yeah like before you like break that how how much can you sort of like overload it yeah um like in in science like in like junior high when you like have a penny and you're like learning about surface tension you're dropping like did you do this like drop like drops of water and you see it like bubble over and how many how much water you can like get to stay on a penny before it just like overflows
1: yeah oh absolutely no it's 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 definitely it's definitely that because theater is also a bit of a science that's why we do workshops and out-of-town tryouts and labs like you have to kind of find the right balance oh before i forget Corey, we gotta take a break
0: something
1: else that also I realized and when I was reading about this musical uh this was you know the early 50s and segregation was still neck high in America and they were t- it was this article I was reading that was saying like there was a bit of a shock at the end of Act 2 with shall we dance when the king and Anna not only danced together but danced in such an intimate way mm-hmm. and this is a show that also toured the provinces this went all across the country and it was a very bold sort of like fuck you to a lot of the segregated states of like and what like what are you so afraid of look at this look how joyful this is Look how sexy this is this should be happening everywhere and i never really thought of that until until recently uh i think that's a more subtle fuck you than you know when hammerstein writes you've got to be taught in south pacific but it is a bit of a fuck you
2: yeah though i mean like uh, this sort of perception of like asian america like in relation to specifically like it's the model minority thing where you go yeah, yeah but they're like not it's it's not like fully a, like a, a mixed race thing
1: because like they're okay yeah well they're they're okay until they're not like every oh other yeah has a, there's always an othering to every othering um yes. yes i've i've been saying this for a while now in terms of broadway anyway it's like broadway's been like we're we're trying to be more diverse like you're and tell more diverse stories i'm like diversity means more than just white people and black people there are other ethnicities and there's also oh, yeah age. i'm like there's also age sexuality gender body type like it's i've been like screaming this for years i'm like it's not a first of all it's not a checklist and there's more than two ethnicities yep 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 no um, i i absolutely hear you uh but-, but but yeah i like that is an interesting framing
2: though of like oh right like in terms of the the context of like when when that is like touring
1: yeah but and i think but i think that had to have been on hammerstein's mind again because he, he gives Tup tim to uncle tom's cabin to read like the yeah, first yeah. major anti-slavery like book. very, like, <laughs> very, it's very pointed point. yeah, yeah it's, you know he's very pointed like just in case everyone's unaware of how yeah. i feel
2: that just like reminds me of, like, oh but it, like we still have that where you go yeah yeah. like when uh oklahoma that fucks like has been was touring like it's yeah. like the past like year in places where they were like sending out like warning emails to like ticket holders
1: <laughs> yeah it's it's because it's so one of the things about this musical that i think is beautiful and also what has kind of hindered it now is that If Broadway had done its job 70 years ago, we would have had more stories like this and beyond this after The King and I. And we could look at it as part of a rich tapestry of diverse stories with, you know, more than just white characters. And and we'd be like.
2: Not just like, okay, you've got King and I and Miss Saigon, the Asian shows.
1: Exactly. 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 And M butterfly in between, uh, for those of you who do plays, um, (laughs) yeah, no, if, if it wasn't just that, I think if there was one of, you know, a hundred or hundreds, uh, the last 70 years on Broadway, we, there would be a little less scrutiny on it, but because of, and it's the same, I've talked about this before. It's the same thing with West side story. Arthur Lawrence said, when we wrote West side story, we expected Broadway to pick up the torch and continue doing what we were doing with diverse stories. Like, we we expected us to like the starting would... point. Like, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. if you look at Oscar Hammerstein's theater credits, he really did try to have as many diverse stories as, as possible. He had all these performance opportunities for non white actors. You have King and I and South Pacific and Flower Drum Song. He did Showboat. He also did the all black production of Carmen, which became Carmen Jones. Like, he really wanted as many opportunities for non-white <laughs> performers as possible and did his best for what he knew for the 20s 30s 40s and 50s as a again it's a white hetero man and they were most of them were major successes and he was like oh surely when i die of cancer in 1960 other people will yeah, well, continue yeah. onwards they won't like it's he's like it's me right now he's like but i've made enough successes other people will do it and then he died and everyone's like so we're good for 30 years yeah like,
0: we got uh, him
2: and
1: it's like what you're saying with like the
2: casting to di- you go as if like diversity is like a checklist of like, okay, we did mm-hmm. it. We like, we cast the perfect show. It's like proportionally diverse or whatever. And you go, no, it's like not that. And it's also not that like also that like there aren't shows or stories that like where you go, okay, maybe there shouldn't be. This they, they shouldn't be all white people. Like, yeah, it's not like succession where you go. I wish I wish there was like a black character, like more black characters. You go that's a a different show. That's a different story. And the fact that there isn't, like, a central, you know, non-white character is fine. It would be different. It would be a different show if the family was black. Yeah, absolutely. Which is fine. And it's not that, like, that shouldn't exist. It's just there needs to be more. There always...
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's always my answer. Just more, more, more. More all the time. More all the time. And
2: then then none of them... It's like... And it's back to the model minority thing. Then this the one thing doesn't have to be the perfect thing. The, like, the one that is the perfect representation yeah
1: there's because there is no perfect representation there's no character in any show that represents everyone that's sort of the point isn't it? it's like we're all just so different with different experiences and i mean for when i announced i was covering this show i had uh actor and writer friends in the theater uh who are asian you know half of whom were like i love that show i will defend it another half were like i have a lot of issues with it one person wrote and they were like I'm tie, like I have a lot of complicated feelings about it. Probably very similar, like I love the score, problem with the book. And that's always been kind of the thing that's traveled along with Rogers and Hammerstein. And then every now and then a revival comes along where we're like, oh, the book is better than I remembered. And then we're like, great. So that means we can continue doing the show and have it be the representation for 50 years. It's like Yeah. No, that's not I, that's not what it is. Um
2: I think when I like saw the revival, I like went into that like revival going like, okay, let's see. Like ready to cringe and afterwards i was like oh like it wasn't it, it, it held up better than i thought and like not that it like is fully good but i think like we said there's like all these elements that like again in different hands like are in in context like all together are sort of like problematic but to the to the show's credit that it does treat the characters as like people like it tries to like which sounds so silly to say but like in a lot of musicals uh, people just get flattened into like nothing.
1: Yeah. No, and that's like look-
2: why it it's like the top 10 thing. You go oh or like Lady Tiang where you go they're they're pe- they, they've like been created as people with like actual like feelings, wants, personalities, like desires and yeah.
1: that's what keeps it from becoming the stereotype. Absolutely. I Boy. again I want to emphasize, I can't emphasize hard enough how eloquent lady tiang is in another person's language like how she's able to not only translate herself but pick like the exact right amount of words because as someone who over talks and (laughs) is always picking the wrong words lady tiang's like i know exactly what i want to say i'm going to take a beat and i'm going to give you a fucking amazing sentence that is an intelligence and a depth that many characters in musical theater today don't have and what hammerstein really was trying to do and again anyone can argue how well he succeeded he looked at how asian characters were portrayed on broadway at that moment and it was mostly satire or big flashy reviews and he was like i want human beings Mm -hmm. and he and Richard rogers were like again we're not making a documentary so what it is is that we're taking our research of this region and we are he's like honestly distorting it a bit for western audiences so they are not put off by it we want to bring them in and again hoping that Eventually, if this won't be such a foreign concept to audiences, that 30 years down the line, we can really have more documentary style musicals. Didn't end up happening, but I digress. Someone also wanted to talk about the character of Anna. We've talked about Anna a bit, like just these leading ladies of the of the golden age that had gumption, because you have some that are more kind of ingenue, and then you have some like mm-hmm. Anna who are. I mean, let me put it this way the role of Anna Leo, Leon Owens in The King and I is sort of awards magnet for anyone who plays it. It has won three sure. different actresses, Tony Awards. Two others have been nominated. Olivier nominations for actresses across the pond. Deborah Kerr nominated for the Oscar in the movie. She's a rich role. She is the central part. She has some good songs. She doesn't have any showstoppers. You know, like she doesn't have, mm-hmm. she doesn't have a rainbow high. She doesn't have a dead girl walking. Like she doesn't have a <laughs> Just have a mistress <laughs> or a Mr. Snow if we're going back to the 50s. Like her songs are more pattery again, because Gertrude Lawrence was like, I'm dying of cancer and I'm 50 with a limited lung capacity. Sure, sure, yeah. Yeah. But but you know, she's we meet her, she's a widow, she's lived a life already by the time the show happens, which means that she has intelligence, but her own prejudice of the world and what she knows. And we watch her growth throughout the show and the dynamic between her and the king, because it's not just pure romantic, but very mm-hmm. intellectually stimulating. She's got great scenes with him and great scenes with Lady Tiang where she's challenged, but there's no moment where Hammerstein writes for anyone of like, you don't understand. This is the way of the world. And and by the way, this is also the message of the show, because uh, I had a warm up episode of this podcast that I uh, it'll be out by now with Rob Schneider not MAGA comedian Rob Schneider, but 50 for <laughs> Rob Schneider where we were like, we've kind of regressed a bit as both audiences and writers of musical theater right now, where we're kind of going more simplistic again of like the twenties and thirties of, as you said, flattening out these characters where they're no longer humans, but rather mouthpieces for political messaging, which is, I'm not opposed to the politics. I'm opposed to the lack of drama and humanity.
2: To me, it, yeah, I, I agree. And it, it's, it strikes me as like, also, and it's a little bit like what you're saying of like the old, the, the movies, like when they came out and they're like stylized in that w- way because of like the Hayes code. And like, also the, the way that like the accents are like literally written down. I feel like there is this like, uh, not actual, but like imagined, like what musical style, like musical theater style is, musical comedy style is mm-hmm. that, is just, like, implanted in our brains that is not actually based on the the actual, like, material of these, like, gold well, Age musicals, which, whether, you know, good or bad, like, are interesting and complicated, and there's, like, texture to them. Um But, like, that's, like, the thing that's in the back of our heads. Um And I feel like the, like, YouTube, like, I, I've, I feel like I've seen this happen on YouTube where, like, vloggers, you, like, start like when they first start versus like where they are now, you be, it becomes a spe- very quick feedback loop where it just like exaggerates, like it becomes a caricature and like yeah. not intentionally. And I feel like that's what we're doing with the idea of like what a musical is. We're like remembering this thing that never was. And it just like feedback feeding back. And that's what's like flattening it out as if like musical theater is a style versus like a medium.
1: Yeah. I think that's a perfect way to describe it. People view musical theater as a style and not a, and not a medium that's perfect i love that that's the t-shirt yeah because i mean every when people say oh i don't like musicals i'm like there's a musical out there for you there's a musical out there for you not like films all yeah. films <laughs> that's that's anna kendrick and pitch perfect i don't like movies and skylar ass yeah. like you don't like any movies you're different <laughs> from other girls uh yeah uh one th- I made a promise to Margaret Hall that I would just quickly shout out the song Western People Funny, which had a very complicated history with the show because the very the title alone makes people uncomfortable, not uh-huh. knowing who's singing it or what it's actually about. Yeah, uh, I think people hear like you said, people, you know, remember something and exaggerate it. They hear the title and they remember as this being this very cringy song of like uh, char- I know, characters in the palace, you know being just, oh, so confused by the West and, and Western audiences watching and being like, oh, how silly they are for not knowing how amazing and modern we are. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, once again, we're talking about big dick energy, Lady Tiang. It's opening a Act Two, uh, when we're establishing that they have to welcome the British uh, to prove mm-hmm. that the king is not, quote, a barbarian. And in order to do so, they're like, well, we're going to give them the culture that they know. And Lady Tiang sings the song, Western People Funny, where she's like, why are we doing this she's like we're we're wearing outfits she's like we're wearing giant skirts like miss anna is that make no sense uh yes. like that's what, what they make a lot of jokes about the way anna dresses because like when the women first meet her she's like they to like under are you your shaped skirt. like that like yeah like they want to look under your skirt because they think you're shaped like that and anna has to explain uh it's symbolic you know for a woman's virtue and and, and then the king says at one point he's like are British men that much like animals that they just attack you if you wear skirts smaller than that? And she's yeah. like, oh, no, it's a symbol. It's a symbol. Because, But again, it's them challenging each other. It's like, your customs can be dumb, too. Like, why are you wearing a hockey field around your waist? Yeah. <laughs> um, but they do it anyway to make the British feel comfortable. And the song is that. That's the point of it. The I think my issue with the song in general is like, it's a little more. There are songs in the score for me that are kind of like music hall-y. And I think that is because of the influence of Gertrude Lawrence in the show. Uh, And I think if she wasn't Anna originally and they had, Mm -hmm. and they were being a little more adventurous musically, I think Western people funny would be a little less like comedic foil. And it's like like very like broad, like, yeah, this, I think the sentiment is on point and it's Mm -hmm. on the side of lady Tiang. It's not on the side of, of Western audiences, but the music definitely can betray that for people whose memories are exaggerated. Like we were saying, Mm -hmm. um, where it is a weird conundrum for me, a puzzlement, if you will. The ballet of the small house of Uncle Thomas. We mm-hmm. have to discuss at least for 90 seconds. Yes. I so in context of the show, do you remember, Corey, how it comes about, why we have this ballet? Uh aren't they perform isn't it for the like the the vid- visiting like Yes. It's no th- vi- we'll you. Yes, Anna says, oh, Tuptim can create a play to perform for everyone, and Tuptim's like, well, better believe I've just read Uncle Tom's Cabin. I've got some things to say. (laughs) So, yeah, I I just love... Because also, by the way, it's like a full year and a half between when Tuptim gets the book and when they do the play. So, like, this book has not left her hand. Like, she's reading it every day. (laughs) Like, the guy who shot Reagan was reading Catcher in the Rye. Um, (laughs) Like, she's just... She's just walking around the palace. She's been working. She's been workshopping this play. Like she's yeah, been doing readings. Was... Like Barry Manilow and Harmony's got nothing on Tuptim to Tim and Small House of Uncle Thomas. She's like, <laughs> I'm going to take years to get this right. But I, I was talking to someone about it, where it's you have, it is American writers and designers and choreographers doing their version of an Eastern style, which is in turn an Eastern woman's interpretation of a Western work. It is a weird house of mirrors. And because it is so all those three Spider-Mans pointing at each other meme, Uh as well as the fact that I do think there's like as with musical theater, a chemical part of it that's just like thrilling in spite of itself. Mm -hmm. It keeps it from ever, in my opinion, it keeps them from ever dying in the history of musical theater while also being on paper a bonkers idea yeah a bad idea like what yeah i feel like when i tell people if people don't know king and i'm like okay so there comes a moment in act two it's a 15 minute ballet and it's it's one of the concubines of the palace doing her interpretation of uncle tom's cabin in the style of asian theater but it's how jerome robbins interprets asian theater and yeah. it's, everyone's like going Oh no i'm sorry death to all of them <laughs> and i'm like i know i know i know i know and yet and yet well because like it's not again that's where hammerstein and rogers like we can't do a documentary because if we if we do what we think is purely realistic first of all we're not going to get it totally right it is gonna age yeah it has to kind of live in this Baz Luhrmann hellscape that is the glory of musical theater <laughs> where it's like it just makes sense when you watch it don't worry about it
2: too much don't think too much yeah yeah like yeah. let it wash over you
1: the think, um oh yeah go I, I would just say like every time I bought and I wish that the movie version of it is on YouTube because first of all everyone does the Drum Robbins staging because I think that's the other thing about it is like if when someone else tries to do it with their own staging, whether they try to go more realistic or more abstract, it fully dies. Like it's this weirdly well put together, delicate house of cards that only works Mm -hmm. with the style that it is. Um, But in the movie, it's both the style and it's the way that Rita Moreno as Tuptim does the narration, because you can Mm -hmm. hear the earnestness with which she presents it. That again, I think it's like when you watch a preschool put on a play and they're so they they're so proud of it. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I'm not gonna talk about how you were staring at your feet the whole time because I'm so yeah. proud of how much you're proud of it. And of course, like tup Tims is is like the Super Bowl version of that. but sure. <laughs> but it is that where like where she's so the way that Rena Reno says the lines is so earnest, like I'm more paying attention to the emotion from her mm-hmm. voice than I am to the convolutedness of the mm-hmm. construction of the piece. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally.
0: And and like, I just as construct and my a Hall of Mirrors like, of Explanation. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, probably. But it is, like, also, it is, like, not subtle and blunt, but it is, like, a, also, like, a theatrically, like, time mold tradition of, like, play within a play to elim- illuminate, like, the themes or characters, or like, whatever. Yeah. You know, it's very, you know,
1: Hamlet or whatever. So, yeah, so it, it, it 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 is tried and true. <laughs> yeah. And there's a the moment where she breaks the fourth wall because... Uh, when Simon of Legree dies, and she's like, I have something to say. I'm happy he's dead. She goes, I think yeah. anyone who owns slaves should die. And she's, it's her moment of almost imploring the king to like let her go. And then she has to stop because she remembers who she is and what her reality is. And she, mm-hmm. and like for a moment, she thought like the power of art will transform the yeah. <laughs> <my> situation. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's that thing where like everyone hopes that they create that one thing that changes the world and all the politics. And it, that's not actually well, reality. And, and it's, and it's, and again, it
2: like underlines, you go, oh, it's like a, it's a, it's a beautiful dance moment. It's like a spectacle thing, but like it's character driven. Like it's not yeah. just like a, it's not just like a detour. You go, oh, it actually, it, it is like not quite. It's like the end, towards the end of her arc, like her story. Like,
1: yeah. Cause we never see after she gets captured and almost whips into oblivion. She doesn't, because that is sort of the major clashing point is she gets captured after Shall We Dance and, Anna sees the part of the king that he has been—I don't—that he, he has been in conflict with the entire time, which is the the legacy of being a king, the customs of his kingdom, and his pride of being betrayed, and ultimately he doesn't do it, which should be a moment of progress and it's is maturation an actual word, or did I just make that up?
2: No, it is. Mat- matura- yeah, no, it is.
1: Okay, fantastic. I, I'm not
2: 100% how you pronounce it. Like, maturation? Mat- maturation? maturation? Mat- I don't know. It's one of those, <laughs>
1: I've like I've read that word. Have I okay. said it out
2: loud? Not a chance. Yeah,
1: I feel like I'm saying real words like Kristen Wiig says them in SNL sketches. Where I'm like, the oh, word yeah. is real, my pronunciation is not. Um, but rather than that, it actually crumbles him and leads to his eventual death i always remember thinking like his demise was very quick and in on stage it is but you there's like what there's one line where it's a blink and you miss it where you realize like oh actually seven months have gone by <laughs> um between between that scene and the final scene uh which also happens at the beginning of the show like between i whistle a happy tune and the march of the Siamese children slash my lord and master like three months have passed <laughs> and you're like <laughs> oh okay like it that is it's not a problem i have with the show so much as i'm like oh Okay, then, like we 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 we're living in this one day for two hours, and then we blink and flash forward nine months, and then we live in this other week for two hours, and then blink and you miss it. Sure, yeah, it's wibbly wobbly. Don't think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't think about wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff. But when Tim yeah. is let go, and we find out that Lunta has died in the attempt to escape, that's the end of Tim's story. And mm. I think that's sort of because there is nothing left to her story now she tried she failed and now this is this will be her life
2: yeah this is
1: yeah yeah the king the king dies and and in his place is his son who will progress siam even further than his father did but still tuptim is is tuptim and that's her life there will be no more bowing we've learned that and there will be more acceptance of science but like tuptim is still tuptim
2: yeah yeah um slight tangent but not um did you see soft power?
1: No. You when we decided th- that you were going to discuss this, you had asked me this before and I said no. And I regret it to this day because I love Tessori and I love David Henry Huang. Talk to me about it.
2: I saw it when it was here in LA when they like when they first did it, and have not stopped thinking about it since. Mm. Um I had no idea what was happening going in. Cause like the tagline was like, uh, it was something like a musical within a play or something, some sort of thing that like technically makes sense, but was unhelpful. Um, you just described the so like, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so like went in not knowing what it was and like, it was, it it's like took some real big swings and like it not perfect. It's like messy and like, but and I know people who saw it and hated it. The setup is, it starts off like a play. There's no music. The like the pit was covered. And it was just like a David Henry Huang play. The framing is, there's a character that is David Henry Huang. I think mm-hmm. it's called DW or something. Who's like meeting with like a Chinese media company. Who like wants to like get into like TV shows and the film stuff. Like because sure, China's like a big economic power now. But like. The U.S. like our biz- biggest export is culture. Like mm. everyone in the world has seen Friends, basically, um, and so they're like, we want more of that like soft power, not just like military. We want like cultural influence. So like we want to make the sh- these shows and the the executive like this like Chinese executive butts heads with the David Henry Huang character who is Chinese American. Versus like Chinese and like the the cultural differences there, mm-hmm. and they're like, why would you portray this like character like this? Like he, he's not honorable. He should be like. Sh- why would he like make this mistake or do this with? The-? And just showing those sort of like uh, that impasse, and then they go to a fundraiser. Uh, it was like very weird and meta. Like at the LA like, the theater center in downtown LA, where I was currently seeing the show. They're like, mm-hmm. we're going to a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton. This is pre-2016 2016. Ele- yeah. election. It's a fundraiser where it's a production of The King and I. Yes. And then and they, like, literally discuss of, like, oh, yeah, like, how they feel about it. Whatever. And then... So, like, I think this is, like, a good half an hour. Like, 20-some minutes. Like, it's a play. It's just a play. It's happening. And then... There's a moment where like the David Henry Huang character is like narrating and he like is talking and he gets, he's like walking home and he gets like attacked and like his like neck slashed and he starts like bleeding out, which is like based on something that actually happened to like just randomly to David Henry Huang, And, and then he hallucinates a musical. (laughs) And then the rest of the show is like, he hallucinates this musical that is a full inversion of the King and I, where the, the, the Chinese executive, it uh, was played by um, Conrad Ricamora. He like arrives in this like unusual country, like f- full of like, and and the entire ensemble is like Asian American performers, Everyone's mm-hmm. in like really terrible, shitty like blonde wigs mm-hmm. and doing like terrible Western like accents. And I think he like steps off the plane and gets mugged, like mm-hmm. uh, and so it's him like trying to like again. It's a reverse like. King and I and yeah. he and he meets and befriends Hillary Clinton.
1: And, um, and has to teach her the ways of the world because she's Exactly. She's Hillary Clinton. And so like it tr- truly
2: is like uh, just a full like King and I inversion. Mm-hmm. Um but in a way that like sort of they they talk about it and like Janine Tessoris talked about how like yeah, there's, like, a complicated feeling with that David Henry Huang has this complicated feeling with the show, too. But there's also something about the music and, like, the relationships that does sort of cut to its core. And it doesn't try to figure that out, but it definitely, yeah. like, uh, digs into that. And one of my favorite parts, actually, though, is the top of Act 2. And they just do, like, a... They did, like, a, like an in-one gag where, like, came back for, for Act 2, and they had, like, a series of director's chairs, like, in front of the stage, and like a moderator came out and like a bunch of people like scholars came out and they're like thank you so much to like for coming to see the like uh, the hundred year anniversary of this like production of soft soft power the like ultimate like example of like the the chinese musical theater form mm-hmm. um and just like a it's this like great bullshit bit about um Like our self-importance of like american musical theater and like the one guy being like actually there were musicals like in america like before like the chinese were doing it and then all the experts being like oh but they were very primitive like they hadn't like figured it out yet um but yeah it was like a weird wild messy show but like had like big ideas didn't resolve them and like was a little cheesy and earnest at the end, where everyone sort of drops character and like sings a heartfelt song at the end. Which like okay, sure, sure um, why not? Um, but yeah, it was like super interesting. Again, as like and I went with a friend of mine who's like Japanese American, and and we're both we're both half, so like that's the whole half Asian, so that's a whole other like weird thing. But mm-hmm. where you go, yeah, 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 you don't see this many Asian actors together unless it's The King and I or miss saigon yes. like on stage um and it was like an interesting like different version of that so we were like very very taken by it and like i appreciated like the big swings but still getting the that like that janine tesori score like injected straight into my veins
1: yeah well first of all janine tesori dom taught me any day daddy but also that's that did not land with Corey. guys uh cory looked at me No, no, no like, I, that... like i can't relate um, no,
2: no, no that 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 was like a yeah, yeah, yeah. That's facts. Yeah. Continue. Yeah, no. like...
1: Um, and I'm not a submissive bottom. Just Janine DeSori can Dom taught me any day she wants. But uh, it, it's sort of it's again, it's the matter of just just any story, trying anything, any way. And you know, Dev- David Henry Wong is such a talented, intelligent man, and Janine can literally write any music in the world. It's I don't know how With she does anyone. It, <laughs> yeah it's it's anyway she can literally do anything um if you're be like people will say oh hummability whatever like she could never write a rogers and hammerstein score and i'd be like give her give it to her she'll do it she can she yeah. can absolutely do it yeah. um but first of all Conrad connection to king and i uh with all that by the way yep <laughs> yeah but <laughs> i don't know, i i love that and i would love to see more of that and you know what's so fascinating with this musical is for all the issues that it has and all of the you know assets that it has, it keeps enduring and keeps, you know, being up there. Uh, two more things I want to say about the legacy and then we have to wrap things up. But one, did you know that there was an animated version of this show? What? No. Like the musical? Yep. Uh I think it's, it's 80 minutes, 75 minutes. Uh, when was this made? 99. So... Quick. Oh,
2: that is later than I thought.
1: Oh, oh, and so and especially if you want to know exactly pe- when people um argue about like just how respectful is the text of the Asian characters in this like watch the 80 minute animated version and there'll be no question of actually how respectful the text is at least attempting to be. Uh because then you have the 80 minute animated version which is just like super racist, super garbage. Uh I can't go on for it too long cuz I will go down a rabbit hole and we do have limited time but uh friend of the pod john riley's podcast life is but a song we do have an episode discussing this movie uh long story short in when rogers and hammerstein had a major resurgence in the 90s with the carousel that fucks and then the king and i that fucked and then the oklahoma that fucked uh hollywood kind of came, came calling or like oh maybe it's time we do some remakes of those 50s versions because you know these shows fuck and they go well let's start maybe I think Warner Brothers, like, let's start with our animated department, and they were going to do a whole series of animated Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. I think Carousel was going to be next, which is bonkers to me. Oh, boy. (laughs) I know, but they did this King and I, and so much has changed. First of all, the King lives at the end. Uh, Wait, I just looked up this poster, and it did unlock a part of my brain that I, like, I don't think
2: I've seen this, but I do recognize this poster.
1: Yeah, the poster is real. Uh, The Louis... Uh, Anna's son, who we haven't talked about once on this episode, and I am thankful for that because yeah. Louis is no, Louis is a boner you. killer if ever there was one, and in the animated version, it's worse because he's, he's also gotta- the worst. He's like a whiny brat, and he's like. I know. Well, so is the king's older son, but at least he has an arc and he grows and he mans up at the end, whereas Louis's just there. Louis he's just like, I hate this. I want to go home. These people yeah. suck. Louis's arc is he's a brat and then he becomes wallpaper. He, like, recognizes <laughs> his place and just becomes silent yeah. in act two. Uh, the move, animated movie is worse because he's got a pet monkey named Moonshi, and they get into no, shenanigans. No. Oh, I no, know. No, 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 um no. Tim is still like, kind of a married slave. Lady Tiang has no lines, which is a major fault in the movie mm. but she doesn't f- have lunta instead they age up the king's son and make him like this dashing prince who falls in love with tuptim she doesn't know he's the prince at first she has a pet elephant named tusker because he is missing one of his tusks yes it's oh and i whistle a happy tune sorry i'm sure sh- this is a podcast i'm shaking oh, okay. my head just slowly yes. no and then uh the king's right hand man in the musical i uh, forget his name, but he's just, you know, he's just sort of a rigid right hand man in the musical and and helps sort of carry out all the king's wishes. He's not there are no actual villains in King and I like the villain is the the complications of humanity and prejudice like that is that is the villain. There's no one person who's like, I will scheme, I will scheme. But in the animated version, they make the uh, his sort of second in command, a, an evil sorcerer. With a buffoonish accomplice yeah. similar to LeFou. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, I forget very, his name, but it's super racist. So also very, like, buck- like, Anastasia-coded, like... 1,000%.
0: <laughs> yeah, he he's, yeah.
1: he's got buck teeth. Uh, and his and he's angry that Anna's going to come in and bring in Western culture because he wants to be the king. And so he's going to make Anna think that the king is barbarian. All crazy. So first he's going to try to scare her off in the opening sequence when she's on the boat coming into Siam. Now, what happens in the musical is Louie's like, I'm afraid because we're in a new country and my dad's dead. And I'm like, yes, Louis, but must you be such a wet blanket? And Anna goes, maybe stop being such a wet blanket and whistle happy tunes. Like, stiff upper lip. Cute. Whatever. In the animated movie, Corey, I shit you not. They're on the boat. The uh, sorcer- evil sorcerer conjures a sea dragon from the ocean no, no, to attack no, the no. boat and it's a sea it's first of all it's also a sea dragon made of magic so like it's kind of still translucent sure and, sure yes. and anna looks it in the in the face sings whenever i feel no 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 I, no, I, no, yep. no 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 and no, no, she no, no, no. louis and the whole crew of the boat this... whistle together to defeat the sea beast
2: you are describing like one of when snl did those like animated sketches like mm-hmm. but, like that's this is what you're describing like this is
1: no you're welcome um it was on Amazon Prime for free. It's not oh, available <laughs> anymore. It, someone might have put it on YouTube. It's a great drinking game because it's 80 minutes and it's bonkers. Uh, it's just, um, it's just terrible. Anyway, but yes, there's that. And then, um, there was one one other thing I was gonna say about the legacy. I forget. Anyway, that doesn't matter. Oh, just um, you we were saying earlier about the design. People talk about the exoticism of the show. I think part of that does come from how it's designed because. If you go for opulence because the whole thing does place place in a palace, you could be accused of being um, fetishizing the region. It's sort of a win win lose lose. Damn if you do. Damn if you don't. That's all I'm going to say. Corey, I'm so sorry that we have to wrap things up now, but we do. Uh, This has been a delight, though. I want you to know it's been a delight and I want you to come back for a three hour episode. Okay. Thank you. Sorry. I,
2: I, I will, I will block it out in my calendar next time. Yes. Now that I, he knows. Now, now, now I know. Now I know. Okay. First thing, where can people find you if you want them to find you? <laughs> I was like, don't find me. Um,
1: Corey Lubo on things. C-O-R-E-Y-L-U-B-O. There you are. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm on Instagram at Matt Koplick, usual spelling. Uh, if you like the podcast, give us a nice five-star rating or little review. Join us next week for God knows what. I have no clue because I record all this out of order and I'm figuring out exactly how I want to release it all, but it should be fun either way. Uh, Corey, in post, I will add a little music to play us out, but I always like to have it be a big Broadway diva. Is there a Broadway diva you would like to have play us out today?
2: Broadway diva. Hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm a bad game, not like a diva gay. Like, it doesn't have to
1: be like diva diva. Just anybody. Any Broadway lady.
2: Any Broadway lady. Um, name a woman. Uh,
1: like, who do I like? Or who do you hate? Or are you just indifferent? Who do
2: I hate? Oh, that's...
1: Mm. Literally. <laughs> pick, pick a woman, oh, Corey. Oh, you heard it here, folks. Corey hates women.
2: Um... The uh, I I'm gonna go with a boring answer, but for like a, a a petty reason. Yes. Um. Uh. uh Sutton Foster, because I'm mad when uh I work on Elsie Fest, and when she did Elsie Fest, she did like a weird, like, quiet set. Like she didn't like fucking wail or like anything. <sighs> it was like a weird sort of like bluesy country, or not like country. It was like it was just like a weird set, and I was like, this is not what I want you here for.
1: <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Clearly, you didn't Look. see Violet because she was quiet in that and she broke my heart. But I hear you. Anytime I did see she does Violet, a... but like in a, con- but he was like an outdoor concert. No, I feel you. it. I know. I feel it. When she did Anything Goes, I had a friend uh, debate if they should see her and they texted me. And they said, should I go see Sutton Foster in Anything Goes? I said, it's Sutton Foster tapping the 1920s. You always go see that. You Yeah. Yeah.
2: Like, let that's her like, fucking blow the roof off the joint. Yeah. That's like, her bread please. and butter.
1: Millie, Drowsy Chaperone, anything goes. 20s, tap dancing, belting, that's Sutton Foster. Okay, we're going to do Sutton Foster then. We're going to do Sutton Foster singing Something Wonderful, which I'm sure doesn't exist, but I'll make it happen due to AI. Uh, Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, Corey. And that's it. We'll see you next week. Sorry for the rushed ending, but it is what it is. Take it away, Sutton. Bye.